We are going to do a couple things now at once, overlaying, um, we're going to overlay our season of Advent, where in the church calendar, we just take a minute to consider what we're about to celebrate. Every year, birth of Christ, Easter, it's like the anchors of our theology that God came into the world and he conquered sin and death and rose again and ascended on high. And so as we prepare our hearts for that, we, we go into this season that is called Advent where we consider the great expectation and the, the, the posture at which we wait. Um, we're going to overlay that on top of something else we're going to do, which is study and continue to study First Peter. In this letter, uh, for the second week in a row, has a perfect passage of scripture as we've been journeying through this text. Uh, for the theme of Advent, you can see behind me, it will be the theme, I hope, of the, the season of our uh, just preparations for Christmas, which is joy. Uh, so we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 4. For the last time in this study, we are going to end the chapter, and then we only have a couple more weeks in 1 Peter, which means we only have a couple more weeks in this year. Uh, so as, as you're turning there, um, this passage of Scripture we're going to look at is really a, uh, a summation of one of the great themes of this book. And as, you think, as we think about what we're going to look at, it has everything to do with our perspective in, in whatever's going on in your life right now. It's an interesting thing how important perspective is. And uh, just a little thought experiment, something that I have the habit of doing every week at church because we only see each other oftentimes on Sundays. So I say either, how was your week? in our little meet and greet. Or on the way out the door, have a great week. And uh, you can answer the question or receive that benediction with an assumption that a good week is a challenge-free week. And that's sometimes what we mean when you're like, how are you? How was your week? It's like, uh, it was good because everything I planned and everything I hoped for and everything that I was trying to accomplish, I got done. And a bad week can be kind of categorized simply as things went awry. And so if I had to ask you right now, as you consider the week ahead of you, if you could have it your exact way, what would it look like? What would the perfect Monday through Sunday coming up look like for you. I imagine not many of you would include, I hope to go through a trial because I'm really excited for how God's going to use it in my life. Paul Tripp in his uh, commentary on 1 Peter says this, if I could design my normal week, the week that I would like to repeat again and again, it would have no suffering in fact, it would have no difficulty of any kind. Nothing would get in my way. My ideas would always rule the day. Everyone would applaud my presence. I would have a body that is completely healthy, a stomach that is always full, and a mind that is always entertained. That is not something that we would disagree with in our heart of hearts, that it would just be great if that's what life looked like. And in this season of holidays, if you aren't, you know, experiencing your theology from church, you might get it from Hallmark, and that is exactly what they're offering you. It's like you have a meeting, very easy, they locked eyes and fell in love, minor inconvenience, and then some sort of miracle wish that was answered, and all problems solved in an hour and a half for all credits. Too often, we think of that in terms of what our expectations are from God. 
that if things are going my way, I'm blessed. And when things go awry, there's something wrong with the relationship. And as we study this entire letter that first that Peter has been writing to the, the church scattered abroad then and us now, one thing that we take away as a major theme is that we are people who have a different perspective on what it means to actually have hope. And in this instance, hope's best friend, which is joy. And so today we're going to not answer a question of whether or not you should be joyful. I think it doesn't take long for anyone to be around church or Christian culture at all before you realize that one of our distinctives is that we are a joyful people. If you grew up in a Christian household, you may have had a parent that woke you up and was like, rejoice in the Lord always. It's a great day to be a Christian. Like, okay. And all of our songs in this season and decoration, it's just filled with joy and ornaments of joy and good tidings of joy and joy to the world and comfort and joy. It's, the theme is out there. All of us should be asking a much more important question. Not whether or not we should be joyful. It's all over the Bible. The question is, how do we actually have joy that is not just leave here, grit your teeth and pretend that everything is okay? How do we actually receive from the word that in the midst of the imperfect day, imperfect week, imperfect church, imperfect family, imperfect job, there is a deep rooted conviction in who we are in God that produces in us a joy that is actually from God. That's the question that we can answer as we study this text this morning. And, and really, from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, we find three perspectives that Peter will give us that can be used as a filter for your suffering, for the times where joy would not be a natural outcome lest God's grace were on you. And it starts in verse 12 through verse 13. Read with me. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Instead, or but, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're looking for a verse that really describes the Advent theme of joy, I can't find one better in the Bible than 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. As you wait or expect his glory to be revealed, that you would be glad with exceeding joy. In your waiting, you have joy. How? These two verses give us our first lens. And that is that you would have the right, or maybe even better put, righteous expectations. It has two expectations for you to have when you leave church, when you leave the baptism waters, when you've accepted an invitation to give your life to God and follow Jesus, two expectations should now be the lens with which you see the world. The first, verse 12, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial. Expect difficult things. Expect there to be instances in your life when you go through the metaphor of trial by fire. It's going to happen. And in the, the reminder of this this morning, he, he says to them and us now, 
Don't act like this is a, like a, a shock to the system when your plans and your hopes and what you had as the measurement of what you would consider a good week versus bad week is disrupted by something difficult. And for all of us, it's like we, we need to be people. Last week, it was sober-minded. This week, it's like don't be people who are easily alarmed by the chaos of the world around you. The world around you should not be shocking when it reminds you that it is fallen, that you leave the sanctuary of living hope and you go into living chaos, that we, we all need to hear a message once again that there is a solution for sin that is necessary because sin in fact does exist and it clouds all of our plans. Don't be shocked. Uh, here's Paul Tripp again. And I'll point out, this is actually an excerpt, not from his commentary on 1 Peter. This is just a, a side bit of don't be shocked. This is his commentary on marriage. This comes from his book on marriage. It says this, if I could, uh, it, excuse me, down here. Don't be surprised. He says, you and I simply never know for sure what is coming next. Think about it. Your life has not worked according to your plan. You could not have written yourself into your present situation 20 years ago. Last week didn't work according to your plan. Today won't work according to your plan. Your life is under the wise and sovereign plan of another. People are going to let you down. You are going to get news that you thought would never happen to you. And there are going to be all sorts of things that happen now, this week, in the immediate future, that are not part of your plan, stop being shocked that an imperfect life. Instead, as you go through all of these things, you can start to wrestle with why is this happening. Instead, in this verse, just hold on to some simple truths that Peter says to you. He says, don't be shocked at the fiery trial which tries you realize that there is in fact purpose in some of the ways that we are tried by fire. He says it twice, trial that tries you. In other words, God will use difficult situations in your life as a, it's a four letter word for all the college students, test. But speaking to the college students, if you are going through your semester and you're learning and you're getting all of this information and you're doing all your study and all your reading, you wouldn't be shocked when it's time to find out what you know. That's what the exam does. It's like, okay, great job listening, lecture, learning, reading. Let's see what is actually retained in your hearts and minds. Don't be shocked. And in the same way, life, when you are given challenges or less than ideal circumstances, you actually get to find out what's in your mind and in your heart. I think all parents know this theology as we go through the difficult season of parenting that requires us to allow our kids to suffer or maybe rightfully put, to overcome manipulative tears because you ask your kids to do something and even if it's not necessarily for the the benefit of the chore they're being asked to do. You gotta find out what your kid has actually got inside their heart and their mind. I have to remind myself all the time, my chores for my kids are 10% 
to actually do the thing I'm asking and 90% to find out what kind of disciple I'm making. What is actually in their heart when it comes to obedience and listening to my commands and working together as a team and serving one another and doing work well, I've got to actually test them to find out who I'm dealing with. And now, children of God, it is no different. You are in a lecture of sorts right now. It's a unique lecture because by the power of the Holy Spirit, the word can come alive and minister to your soul. But in fact, I am putting doctrine and theology and exhortation and encouragement, not for the sanctuary, but for the streets. And to find out what you actually believe about the God that you just sang to. You, you can't just listen to the way you sing songs. You actually have to watch the way you live life. I've heard it said that we'll be known by our fruit. And to find out what kind of fruit is in a tree, sometimes you have to shake it. And that's what God will do for us. As you read through the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, you watch that list and all of the ways that we're supposed to walk in the Spirit. All of them require us to go through difficult times to see how we react. So don't be surprised, but rather expect the suffering to be used, God, as a way to disciple us and show us something about who we are. Another expectation, before we move on, there was two verses that we read. There are two expectations that you use as a lens for anything challenging in your life. The first, expect hard things. The second, expect God's glory to outweigh it all. Look what it says in verse 13. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, this is key, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. That word's very important because as much as the Bible promises suffering, it, it almost paints a picture that there is a, there is a balance or it's putting suffering on the weight. And on one side, you have suffering. On another side of the balance, there is the glory of God. And every time we get a picture of challenging situations that are given to us by God, we get a greater picture or a more exceeding weight of his glory. And that is, in fact, the second expectation that we have to have. That when his glory is revealed, whatever suffering you're going through now will be so much greater his glory. That's how all suffering works. The, the, the promise of suffering is not something you have to hear about in church. Believer, non-believer, religious, non-religious, we all have to wrestle with a conviction about how to get through suffering. And the people who get through it have an understanding that whatever you're going through, you have to have an eye on the horizon that there's something that will make it worth it. So for any of you who have suffered physically to get a physical outcome, Surely you've thought about the end goal, whatever your goal weight is or your goal body mass index is or your goal muscle weight is, keep your eye on the horizon line. I think maybe the more appropriate picture, especially for our season of Advent, is the most suffering that the human body can endure, which is, men, you should be answering this for your wives, which is labor and delivery. Come on, guys. <laughs> You're like breaking my femur. It's like, don't ever say that. <laughs> It's labor and delivery. The most pain that a body can endure is to produce life that God would produce in you and through you to add a newborn baby. And of course, Jesus uses that metaphor for his own suffering. He says, like a woman in labor, 
goes through the pain and the suffering. And when the baby is in her arms, that joy exceeds all labor. Now, women, you can now attest to that for the men. How incredible is the miracle of newness of life in your arms to completely counterweight nine months of suffering and hours and hours and hours of labor? And the key to it all is that you would believe that suffering is counterbalanced by the glory that is being produced. I think you could take the pregnancy example and go even further because what has happened sometimes, I actually got an update even today that one of our sisters in Christ is pregnant. It's so hard. It's so hard to be pregnant, but just saw another ultrasound. So you get along the way reminders of what's coming. And this is what Peter is offering us throughout this entire letter. What you're going through is hard. What is coming? The inheritance of heaven, the glory that is to be revealed exceeds anything you can experience on this side of heaven. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys for seeing the coming sorrow, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's suffering, tasting the coming joy. As the season gets darker, it's a good time. And also as we get to the end of the year, if you haven't you know, read many books this year, you need to squeeze one in before the end of the year. Um, there's a great book that just gives such a beautiful climax to this idea in C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. It is a nonfiction, try to understand a vision for heaven. The vision that Peter is trying to help us understand that we have to believe beyond our own sight and live by faith that there is a, an eternal glory that will make everything you're going through right now incomparable. And this is how C.S. Lewis describes it as he has this moment where heaven has a tour guide and he's describing how glorious heaven is compared to earth. He says, all of hell is smaller than one pebble of your earthly world, but it is smaller than, your, than one atom of this world, the real world in heaven. He says, look at your butterfly. He's pointing to this new creation and there's a butterfly on a tree. He says, if it swallowed all of hell, hell would not be big enough to do it any harm or to have any taste. All loneliness, angers, hatreds, envies, itching that contains rolled into one single experience and put into the scale against the least moment of joy that is felt by the least in heaven would have no weight that could be registered at all. None of this works. Your suffering now does not work. It brings you to your knees. It makes you shake your fist at God. If you do not believe that there is a counterweight in the goodness of God for your life now and in eternity that will make everything incomparable compared to his glory. And this entire letter falls apart if we lose sight of what God is doing to bring heaven to earth and capture his people into his kingdom. And we go on. It says this, in verse 15, or verse uh, 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. So we have not only a, a, a proper expectation, he's also now going to give us some examination to make about what we're actually suffering for. 
So in verse 14, he says, if you're being reproached for the name of Christ, you're blessed. And then he'll go on to say in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Not all suffering produces godly joy in your life. Suffering allows us to make an examination of what we're actually doing with our lives and weigh it towards God honoring suffering and some suffering that is a waste of your life and a waste of your time. He says the first option is that you might actually suffer, and this is the God-glorifying, fruitful, joyful, rejoicing suffering, when you are reproached or spoken evil against because of the name of Christ. Again, this is a theme throughout 1 Peter. These people were, as Peter describes them, outcasts in their society. Believers in a non-believing culture. Pilgrims passing through, and they were the outcasts thought of as strange people. He says, now if you suffer because you're following this narrow way of truth and life and way that is in Christ and Christ alone, you may actually be spoken evil against. And that is true then, it's true now. He says, for that suffering, you can actually be blessed. He, he's, he's going all the way back to what we just said. If you're suffering at the extent that you're identifying with the suffering of Christ, if it's because of his name that you're suffering, if you're living out your faith and because of that you're swimming upstream and going against the grain of culture, this is a blessing. And so for some of you, I just want to encourage you that in the challenge and the fire by trial, in that way that you've experienced feeling like an outcast in your own circle of family or friends or work, there is a blessing in that. What that blessing is, we can maybe look to the teachings of Christ more exactly. Every time we listen to Peter teach us, we can imagine Peter learning what he received from Christ. And in this, in this way, in this exact moment, I can't help but think of Peter listening on that Mount of Beatitudes outside the Sea of Galilee where Jesus took his disciples up and he taught them how to live the blessed life. And he starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he goes through all of these ways that if you posture yourself with humility and you look to God and you become a peacemaker and you just, you, you, you want to be someone that God can use, you'll be blessed. And he ends all of those blessings with something that is so similar to what Peter just shared with us. It says in Matthew chapter five, verse 11, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my namesake. Now why? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. Keep your eye on the horizon line. And then he gives a second reason. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As Peter was sharing with Peter and the other disciples, he said, listen, as you go through whatever this world throws at you, know that there is a reward of the coming kingdom of God that you belong to. Be excited about that. And then he also said, know that you're in great company. And for Jesus, he just had to look back to the prophets. 
said, study the prophets. All of the people that God used had to go through the reviling of the world. You can think of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or the people that God used that spoke for God and had people speak against them. He said, don't worry, you're not alone. People have gone before you and you're in their company. As Peter shares with this, with us, we don't have to look back to the prophets. We now look to Jesus. This is the ultimate pinnacle of the example of someone who suffered for the glory of God, was rewarded at the right hand of God with a place for eternity as the king of the kingdom. And he says, you now are in his company to the extent at which you partake in the sufferings of Christ. As we continue to conclude this letter, another verse that will just be a standalone, if you want to know what 1 Peter is saying, read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Again, talking to the, the people who are going through suffering, he says, for this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Followers of Christ... You are blessed as you follow Jesus. And what is one of the great marks of following Jesus? Now we have to swim upstream of our own Christian culture. Is it that he just blesses you and matches every financial giving that you've ever made double and that he gives you health and wealth and everything that you've ever wanted and he actually does bring the perfect day and the perfect week and the perfect church to your life here and now so that you can have your best life now? That's not what we find in scripture, unfortunately. In scripture, we find follow in the footsteps of Christ who suffered on our behalf. You really want to know what it's like to follow Jesus on this narrow and difficult way? His words, not mine. What are you willing to do to give God glory in a world that hates God? How are you willing to allow your suffering to be someone else's blessing. And in all of this, one of the great challenges of going through a season of fiery trial, for which some of you, this is not a teaching, this is actually a sermon that is an exhortation for your life. Some of you need to be pastored by the word right now because you are being qualified as a blessed follower of Jesus because of a fiery trial. One of the biggest challenges is to feel like a difficult season or a, a suffering moment is the absence of God. That as you go through a health scare, as you go through the, the headline news that is specific for you, as your plans break down, as your hopes vanish, sometimes you have to wonder, God, am I doing something wrong? Are you punishing me? Are you mad at me? Are you with me? So one of the joys that we can receive, Peter gives us in verse 14. You need to cling to this verse in your life. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Peter is saying, you're not alone. One of the reasons you're blessed is because in these moments, God brings his spirit to bring peace, an extra measure of comfort. 
And as we think of all of this in the season of Christmas, we have to remember we don't just celebrate Christmas as tradition, we celebrate Christmas as theology. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 says that you shall call, the virgin shall give birth, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. In this season where we think about God sending his son into the world, we think about God sending his son into the world not to immediately take a throne, but to go into the darkness of night, into the poverty of humanity, into the least of these, to be born in a manger and to go through human flesh to suffer with us. And we have this unique ability to worship a God who is not far, who is not distant, who is not requiring us to overcome our suffering, to finally ascend the, the mountain where he meets us. We believe in a God that in our suffering, we know him most. That Christ sent into the world to give his life a ransom for many. So one of the options in your examination of what you're actually going through in your life is that you're actually being a follower of Christ. And of course, there is an option that is not something that you will find joy in. And we read it in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, as an evildoer. We can think of the Sermon on the Mount once again. Um, I'm hoping none of you have literal blood on your hands this morning. If you do, there will be suffering to follow. You will be found out. You will be condemned. But all of us can relate to murder of the heart, where there are times where our heart is not right with God or his people, and undue suffering will follow. And relationships will break down, and families will break down, and uh, hearts can grow bitter, and uh, life can grow cold, because we fall in line with not being a sufferer because we're following Christ, but being a sufferer because we're a sinner. For that suffering, we do not get an encouragement that life is going to be blessed and you're going to receive joy. And lest any of us think that we can be spared from undue suffering in our sin, he also includes a bar by which in this season, again, we can probably all relate to, uh, not only evildoers, but as busybodies in other people's matters. <laughs> there may be suffering just because you're putting your nose where it doesn't belong. <laughs> and you're taking on people's drama as gossip, and you may be, as one of the encouragements that we find in this letter, you may be tempted to return evil for evil and speak uh, reviling for reviling and you may get caught into a culture war of words and you may find yourself just being a busybody trying to solve all of life's problems and all of culture's chaos yourself. That will cause you undue suffering as well. So Peter says, make an examination. Why are you actually suffering? For one, you can find joy. For the other, there is nothing you can find but a call to repentance. Suffer for what matters. And there is a final moment of examination. So you consider, are you suffering for being a Christian? Are you suffering for being a sinner? Or verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. 
And it begins with us first. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? An argument from the lesser to the greater. And then he quotes a proverb, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now he's using the word judgment in line with suffering. He says, let it start with us. So there's another examination to be made. This one requires the most submission to a trust in God. But there are times in your life where the fiery trial is being used to refine you in a process of purification. There are times in our lives where God will allow something to expose our hearts and our minds in the real world of not sanctuary theology, but actually living where our real hope is exposed and we have to suffer through the loss of job or friends. And our real, our real prayer life is actually laid before us and we see what we actually believe about trusting in God. And for this, we have to allow God, as Peter will say, to begin with us, cleanse me even by fire. One of the ways that Peter will use the metaphor of fire by trial is by saying a goldsmith will actually use fire to refine gold and get away the dross. So you actually know where the value is and get rid of the junk. And in this proverb, you could say that Peter is saying the same fire that refines gold will burn up straw. And in our lives, in a proper view of God's sovereignty and will of, our, of his good plans for our lives, sometimes we have to allow in proper examination of what's happening, God to refine us. Look what Jesus says of the matter, John chapter 15. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it bear more fruit. Something happens to strip away the parts of you that are not the gold of God. And I, I think as you examine the sanctuary this morning and you see these examples of people who have learned how to pray, really learned how to trust God with their hopes and their fears and expectation. There's probably a small percent of you prayer warriors that are just amazing at discipline. You read the word and obey it and you have the wisdom of Solomon as a grace of God. There's a much larger percentage of people who have learned how to pray that have been brought to their knees in a season and a period of trial. And through very difficult situations, you have learned how to trust God in prayer. And the same could be said for those of us who, who just have hearts to be praising and worshiping in God. There are a small percentage of us that from the time we were in children's ministry all the way through our lives, just saying praise to God and we were never tempted to listen to secular music. And then there are those of us who have learned how to worship through absolute trial. We have learned how to reprioritize our lives so that the worship of God is something that is genuine and real and all of the other things were stripped away and exposed as dross. 
an examination of what you're actually going through right now. The name of Christ, rejoice and be blessed. Sin, repent. Purification, open your hands, open your heart and say, God, let judgment start in my heart. Let your purification and your pruning, before we consider all the ways that the world is chaotic and needs the gospel, purify my heart and my mind. Finally, we have one verse. Uh, the final way that we can view anything that we're going through. We have the, the, the proper way that we have expectation and examination. And finally, the application. If you're going through it right now, when the trial comes, what then should you do? How do you live in the midst of it? And look what Peter says, therefore, here's my final ex exhortation to you. Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Here's another verse that you can just circle and say, this really is what Peter is getting at at the heart of his letter. When you are suffering because of an evil empire and governors who are less than godly and pagan, when you are suffering because of a harsh master and a workplace that is evil, when you are suffering in an unequally yoked marriage and household, he says, endure and keep doing good. God has an incredible grace, a mysterious, wonderful grace that somehow the people who are going through the hardest times sometimes have the greatest opportunity to give him glory and do good. I think all of us, no matter the state of the ups and downs of your life, are called to allow our good works to glorify God. But when you are going through a trial, Peter says, commit your soul to God and do good. And that is one of the great profound answer that God gives us in our waiting for the hope of heaven, season of suffering, Keep doing good. Pray for your enemies. Turn the other cheek. See every opportunity that you can. Don't push pause on following Jesus, but do whatever you can to use the opportunities that God gives you to do good and give him glory. So keep doing good. And then verse 19 says, therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him. This is the, the moment that will allow you to do all others. If you commit your life to God, you will begin to see your struggles the way he sees them. You will begin to hope in heaven. When you commit your life to God, you will allow him to prune you and purify you. You will repent of sin. And the picture that is used here is the way you commit your money to the bank. It's like, we know that there's a crazy world out here. You probably shouldn't keep your stash under your mattress. So trust the bank. They're gonna guard it. They're gonna take care of it. They're gonna give it back to you when you need it. 
and all the things that they do with it, as mysterious as it may be, trust that if you commit it to them, they'll care for it. Now Peter says, do the same thing with your soul. You live in a chaotic world. You live in a world where suffering is inevitable. It will happen. So you take the soul, the whole of your being, and you say, God, I trust you with this. I trust that you'll care for it. I trust that you'll make sense of everything that I don't see. And I trust that you'll give it back to me more glorious than when I gave it to you. So have the right expectation. Make an examination of your life. Keep trusting God and keep doing good. As we're worshiping, let God speak to you on each one of those areas. And let God bless the season that you're in, however imperfect you may think it is.